Our God is an awesome God. Praise the Lord. Look at this second crowd here today, man. You guys are on fire. Praise the Lord. You're not ashamed to shout hallelujah. And it sounds like you got an amen on your tongue. Praise God. If I say God is good, what are you going to say? All the time, man. All the time. God is good. Praise the Lord. What an exciting day. Here we are just hours from Rosh Hashanah, a new year. I'm telling you, I, I tell you, if you look at it this way, take your book bag and take out the old junk that you don't want to carry into the new year and put in what you do want to carry into the new year. Yes, you got a couple of hours to get that right. And uh, they say, you know, the Jewish people take apples and honey and eat it during this time. saying it's going to be a fruitful and sweet year. They're, they get prophetic even in what they eat. <laughs> Praise the Lord. So uh, I don't know if a honey crisp apple would just stand alone. I don't know how that works, but <laughs> you get you that if you would like. Thank you for coming out this morning to Christian Embassy. Out of all the churches in Hampton Roads you could have come to, you chose to be here. And I just thank you. I don't take that lightly. I see you. You're, most of you cleaned up before you came. As I look out over the congregation, I appreciate the efforts you made. <laughs> oh my, it's so good to be family and enjoy each other. Uh, Dr. DeLong has uh, provided a detailed uh, sh a sheet. It's at the Welcome Center. He said it's a, you're welcome to get one. It's a copy of all the feasts and the scriptures and some of the, uh, the applications of that and everything. So if you'd like that, Dr. Long's made that available. It's at the Welcome Center. Make sure you pick one up before you leave. Also, Pastor Dika invited all the guests to go by. He's got a special gift at the Welcome Center for you. Uh, some of you came in here with cookie breath, so I know you've already uh, been by the food table, and, and uh, that was good as well. But uh, it is a good day to be alive. Praise the Lord. And uh, I just encourage you as we go into this new year and into this new week, let the Lord Jesus Christ rule and reign in every area of your life. Amen? Amen. Amen. You say, Pastor, you got a handheld. What's going on here? We have a guest speaker. We are honored today uh, for a friend of ours that uh, came in kind of as a business colleague in the beginning. As you know, about 13, 14 years ago, Pastor Radika and I went from just being advertisers in the Shepherd's Guide, which brought so many of you to us, to also being publishers here in Hampton Roads, and we've been faithful in serving the Lord in that area in the Marketplace Ministry and the Trusted Compass Christian Business Network as well. But um, here two years ago, uh, he gave us a, a, I reckon you would call it greater responsibility as uh, we took ownership of the Shepherd's Guide National. And uh, now that has been the last two years, not only as advertisers, which we still are, uh, as publishers here in Hampton Roads and in Baltimore, uh, which we still are, but also now owners and uh, giving oversight to all of the publishers in the nation. And uh, if you know anything about the history of the Shepherd's Guide going back to 1980, uh, it was a God idea, uh, God putting us in the marketplace, us Christians, living our faith out in the marketplace. And uh, one of the things that God told us about 13 years ago, he said, I need you to get outside the four walls of the church and I need you to take my light and take my word and take the message of faith into the marketplace. And, and the Shepherd's Guide was the platform he gave us. And doing that, we have prayed for people in the marketplace. Uh, our trusted compass, Christian Business Network, we've seen folks give, get right with God. Business owners uh, get uh, not only healed of uh, physical disease, marriages restored. We've seen some tremendous uh, ministry take place among business leaders and business owners uh, right out in the marketplace. It's just been amazing. And uh, a part of the God plan of the Shepherd's Guide was uh, bringing in a Christian who understood the law to help this global move of God uh, be done correct. And one of those gentlemen, and a very primary one, was the gentleman who's with us today, Thomas Shetlick. Uh, Brother Tom has uh, been with the Shepherd's Guide in helping get a lot of the foundation set up, and, and the uh, founder who founded it, Doug Scheidt, uh, working with him. So what we're working on today and using today, we can look back over this. But let me just tell you a little more about Brother Tom here. 
he is one of the founding principals of Ferguson, Shetlick, and Ballou Law Firm. He heads both the firm's corporate and business law practice in its personal legal service department. He concentrates his work in the fields of business planning, business litigation, trust, and estates, and family matters. He devotes much of his practice to assisting charitable and religious organizations. He is an author and a frequent speaker, as he's even spoken at our Christian Business Network, The Trusted Compass. And, uh, and he speaks on Maryland church law as well as the Bible and how the Bible gives us the, the moral standards of the law that we have. Uh, he's highly regarded by attorneys in the community at large and for all of his legal skills and his community service. He holds an AV rating from Martindale, a Hubble awarded by peer review. Listen to this, for the highest standards of professional skill and ethical practice. Now that blesses my heart because Christians rise and should be uh, the examples of the ethical character and nature that God has called us to. He's a frequent speaker and contributor on business, taxation, and charitable issues. Uh, he has been named one of Maryland's top ten attorneys by the American Institute of Family Law Attorneys. He has extensive courtroom and trial experience in both Maryland, uh, the state court, as well as federal courts. Uh, he devotes much of his practice to assisting churches, praise God, and Christian ministries uh, throughout Maryland. He is a national president of the Christian Professional Network and the editor of its monthly publication, CPN On Point. He has served as the commentator on religion and the law, a regular radio feature. He serves as the board of trustees of the Baltimore School of the Bible, where he was an instructor at the Bible College there for over 25 years. Uh, he also serves on the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, Christian Missions by Many Lands, and the Maryland Bible Society, and a teaching elder in his church of Forge Road Bible Chapel there in Baltimore. And in, in, in his spare time, he does even more things. He chairs the Greater Baltimore Center for Pregnancy Centers, and uh, he has been honored by Baltimore City and the Maryland General Assembly for outstanding citizenship and for serving the citizens of Baltimore. He is of the bar of the uh, Maryland uh, Law Group as well as the uh, Supreme Court. He's just a guy that is involved in a lot for the glory of God. Uh, I love it that he does not compromise the Word of God, but he represents the Word of God, whether he's behind a pulpit in his church or whether he's behind a lectern or whether he's before the Supreme Court. We need men like Thomas Shetlick when we thank God for men like him, and we are honored today to have uh, this very busy but and blessed man with us. He's on vacation in Nags Head, and we pulled him up uh, from the beautiful waterfront today to come and share with us. If you all would help me make welcome Thomas Shetlick as he comes to minister to us today. Thank you. Yes, sir. It's all yours. Well, good morning. Thank you very much for your gracious invitation to be with you today. I bring you the greetings of the Christians at Forge Road Bible Chapel. I bring you a good report of the work of the gospel from Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, I feel like I've been with you for, uh, for a couple of weeks because uh, anticipating my time here, I've been uh, enjoying your services online. Well, I got to know you a little bit. Uh, I know that you're excited about going into the new year, the Feast of Trumpets, which then is followed quickly by the Day of Atonement and then ultimately by the Feast of Tabernacles. And so I know that this is a time that you've been really focusing on the things that the Lord has for us. Would you open your Bibles with me, please, or swipe your iPads, whatever works for you, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, which is where we will start today. Book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Uh, I am a lawyer by training. Uh, our firm, Ferguson, Shetlick, and Ballou, we are, uh, we are centered in Baltimore, Maryland. We started in Baltimore, Maryland. We've grown to be a regional firm so that we practice in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, 
District of Columbia, and now also here in Virginia um, for, uh, with, our, with our home base in Baltimore, but doing work throughout the whole Chesapeake region. And I do head the Christian Professional Network and its publication, CPN on Point, as well as Maryland Bible Society, Baltimore School of the Bible. Thank you for all those, for, for, for remembering all of those works. Now, I know that this is a church that believes the Bible and does Bible study. So this morning, I would like to do Bible study with you. And I'd like to speak with you this morning about the nature of faith. And I want to do that by doing a character study with you of a character from the Old Testament, someone who we probably know, but maybe don't know quite so well. Faith is the lifeblood of Christian life. Faith is the lifeblood of Christian ministry. We are saved by faith. We walk in faith. We live in faith. We fight by faith. We die in faith. And so this morning, we're going to travel to the ancient city of Jericho, and we're going to meet a character who is a heroine of faith, and we're going to do a character study on her life. We're going to start here in, chapter, in Hebrews chapter 11, and we'll pick up the reading for connection in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who has received, he had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who, who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. May the Lord bless, giving us a good understanding of his word together this morning. Our subject is introduced to us in verse 31. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe. Now, the book of Hebrews is unique in the New Testament because it's not really a letter. We call it the epistle to the Hebrews, but it's not written as a letter. Rather, Hebrews is the transcript of an address. It's a speech. It's a sermon. Now, we can't know for sure, and we don't know for sure, but with a very high degree of confidence, what we call the book of Hebrews is the text of an oral discourse. It's given in a Jewish synagogue, most likely in Rome. It's given by a very well-educated, very articulate Jewish man. My best candidate is Silas. If you'd like, we can talk about why I think that afterwards. It's given from the synagogue in Rome. The greeting at the end seems to be from Rome. Then it's reduced to writing with a brief coda at the end, and then it's distributed. The evidence for it being a speech is throughout this book. Now, first of all, it just sounds like more of an address than a letter. It's something that's written, that's something that is said to be heard rather than something that's to be read. The words of Hebrews, like we just read, have a, have a cadence, they have a pulse, they have a beat, like nowhere else in the New Testament. The speaker uses the same phrase repeatedly, rhythmically. Like Martin Luther King, when he gave his I Have a Dream speech, he returns to the same phrase over and over. By faith, by faith he forsook Egypt. By faith he kept the Passover. By faith they passed through the Red Sea. But even more convincing are the indications throughout the book that this is a text that is being spoken. Like you see behind me, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. The main point of the things we are saying 
or Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9. Beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you, yes, things concerning salvation, though we speak in such a manner. And the most obvious example is here in chapter 11, Hebrews 11, look at verse 32. For what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets. Now, how many times have you ever heard a speaker, maybe even sometimes one standing right here, say, you know, there's so much more we could consider, so much more we have to say, but my time is limited. They put a big clock right there when the speaker could see it. See, I've never read that in a book. I've never read where an author said, I've got to wrap this up, I'm about to go over my page limit. But the author here says, our time is limited. The time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and the others. In the first 10 chapters of Hebrews, he's spoken about 5,200 words. Now, the normal pace of a speaker is 130 words a minute which means that he's at this point, has spoken just about 40 minutes. Not unlike what we do today. He has 10 minutes remaining in his prepared remarks. For 40 minutes, he's been exhorting his listeners. He's been admonishing them and chastening them and pushing them and pulling them. And now as he rounds towards his finish, like every good speaker, he seeks to inspire them. He wants to inspire them from their history, from their heroes, Abraham, Moses, David, Joshua. And right there among these heroes, he names a woman, a Canaanite, a prostitute, Rahab the harlot, who in the book of Joshua hid the two men that were sent into Jericho and then got them out of the city. And in return for her protection, she and her family were saved when Jericho was destroyed. In introducing Hebrews 11, the author makes a distinction. There are those who by faith draw near and believe to the saving of the soul, and those who do not believe and draw back unto perdition. You're either drawing near or you're drawing back. There is no standing still. There is no middle ground. Faith is the difference between going forward and falling back. And faith is always forward-looking. All throughout Hebrews 11, Abraham left Ur and moved forward. Under Moses, Egypt, uh, Israel left Egypt and moved forward. They were moving forward and looking forward to a better place and a better homeland. Faith is not backward-looking. There's a lot of talk today. Faith sounds like it's backward looking. Faith sounds like it's an exercise of nostalgia. Faith is like what we used to do in the 1950s. Faith is not long for the good old days. Faith is not afraid of tomorrow. Faith is not afraid of the changes that tomorrow is going to bring. Faith is the difference between going forward and falling back. Faith is the difference between life and death. Verse 31 states this in clear and stark language. City of Jericho was, was destroyed, and everybody in it perished. Why? Because they did not believe. But Rahab was saved because of her faith. More than once in Hebrews 11, the author focuses on places or on people living under the judgment of death but some are saved because of their faith. By the wrath of God came a flood so great that all in whom was the breath of life perished. But Noah was saved, and his family was saved because of his faith. By the command of Pharaoh came the first great genocide in history as Hebrew children were thrown into the Nile. But Moses was saved because of faith. In each of those two cases, by the way, an ark was prepared. The ark that Noah built, the ark that the parents of Moses built, of bulrushes to put Moses in. Jesus Christ and his salvation is our ark. Amen. And it is our ark, just like the ark of Noah, it is big enough to save everybody in the world, 
And just like the ark built for Moses, it was constructed personally for you. And now, here again, there's a place and there's a generation marked for destruction. The city of Jericho was doomed. People were living under the sentence of death. But Rahab would be saved because of her acts of faith. Not because of her high moral character, not because of her standing in society. Her life and her chosen profession gave evidence of neither. She is saved because of her faith. In fact, just as the faith of Noah would reach down and save his children and sanctify his children, and just as the faith of the parents of Moses would reach down and sanctify their son, now the faith of Rahab is going to reach up and it's going to save her parents as well as herself. So who was this woman? Why does her story deserve mention in this prominent company of Hebrews 11? I put up here two other New Testament scriptures. The first is from the book of James chapter 2. Now you might want to think of the book of James chapter 2 as the mirror image of Hebrews 11. If Hebrews 11 is the hall of fame of faith, then James 2 is the hall of fame of works. Sometimes we think of faith and works as opposites, but James doesn't see it that way. And as we stroll through the Hall of Fame of works, we see the same people. We see the same uh, actions, the same events as we see in Hebrews 11, and Rahab is in both. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works, faith was made perfect. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. James is using the same examples as our author in Hebrews is, saying the same thing from a different vantage point. Faith is not to be confused with superstition. Superstition tries to read the will of God in coincidences and figure out what God's trying to do. If Rahab was superstitious, she would have tried to read her future in the stars. Faith is not to be confused with fatalism, which is someone who says, well, whatever I do doesn't matter. Heaven has a plan. Whatever will be, will be. I can't impact the end result. If, Abraham, if, if, if Rahab believed in fate, she would have said, heaven has a plan. Whatever will be, will be. Faith is not even to be confused with religion, which is obligation and ceremony for its own sake. If Rahab was religious, she would have prayed to the Canaanite gods. James says, look, you can believe in superstition. Oh, and by the way, a lot of Christians do. A lot of Christians do. And you can believe in fate, and you can believe in religion, but they are all dead. And if, a, and if Rahab had believed in them, if that's all she had, she would have been dead too. Faith is believing the word of God enough to turn it into action and to move forward. Faith is what, what, like Moses did at the Red Sea, faith is what Abraham did at Moriah, faith is what, Jer what Rahab did in Jericho. Second scripture here is from Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. Rahab's moving in some pretty good company here. James talks about what she did in the same breath as Abraham offering Isaac. Matthew puts her in the same sentence with David. Author of Hebrews includes her in the same paragraph with Moses and Joshua. How does a Canaanite prostitute fit into the list with Abraham, David, Moses, Joshua? Hebrews 11 mentions only two women, Sarah and Rahab. Matthew 11 has only two women, Ruth and Rahab. What was it about this woman who appears so briefly in Old Testament history that so impressed these New Testament writers? That's the question. Let's try to find some answers. Turn with me to the book of Joshua, chapter 2. 
And we're going to be in Joshua chapter 2 for a while, so keep that open in front of you. And let's go together to Old Testament Jericho. This is what the dig site looks like today. We're going to be moving about in Joshua, so keep your Bibles open. As we come in, uh, Israel is on the doorstep of the land that God had sworn to their fathers. The city of Jericho lies just across the river. Chapter 2, verse 1, Joshua sends two men to spy out the land, and especially, he says, Jericho. Now, the presence of two million people camped in their backyard has certainly gotten the attention of the people of Jericho. This is a world where there is no mass media of any kind. There's no evening news, there's no Twitter, there's no Facebook. News travels by report and rumor and gossip, and the reports and rumors and gossip that Israel, of Israel had certainly reached to Jericho. I mean, after all, Egypt was the superpower of the day. And many ally, they had many allies in Canaan, and news of the plague and news of the death of Pharaoh had found their way there. Two million people out in the wilderness for 40 years must have gotten some attention. And in chapter 2, verse 10, Rahab says, We have heard how the Lord dried up the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites. And now, suddenly, what yesterday was report, rumor, and gossip is all too real. Israel has emerged from the wilderness. They're just over the river, and the city goes into panic mode. In verse 11, Rahab says, Our hearts melted. Neither was neither did there remain any courage in anyone because of you. The city goes into lockdown. Verse 1, Joshua sends in two men, which is an assignment I would not have volunteered for. And in verse 2, they are found out. It was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. The king of Jericho mobilizes his security forces for a manhunt, door-to-door manhunt. Remember a few years ago at the Boston Marathon, there was that terrible bombing at the Boston Marathon, and the whole country watched as Boston went into lockdown, and as the police were going door to door to door to door. That's what's going on here. And the two men look for cover. And suddenly, all the attention focuses on one house and on one person, Rahab, and the dangerous decision she has to make. Does she hide the spies, or does she give them up? It's a decision from, where, from, whence there, from which there can be no turning back one way or the other, and it means leaving one way of life and joining another. Now, because Rahab appears so briefly on the Old Testament stage, preachers and authors and uh, artists have varied greatly in trying to describe who she was. Some see her as this uh, bawdy innkeeper running a tavern, Sort of a mystic, so, so sort of a cynical mistress of the house, you know, uh, watering the wine, making up the way, picking up their knickknacks when they can't see straight. But I don't think so. Here in Joshua 2, Rahab is young. She's very young. She's 16, 17 years old. We'll talk later about why we know that. But for now, look at verse 12. When Rahab makes her agreement with the spies, she says that in return for her protection of them, that when Jericho falls, that they show mercy to, she says, my father's house. Then in verse 13, she names them. My father, my mother, my brothers, and sisters. Her father and mother are still living. Verse 18 suggests her brothers and sisters are still living at her father's house, still quite young. And she doesn't have any children. Certainly, if she had children, she would have mentioned them in verse 13. Rahab is noteworthy in Hebrews 11, not just for her gender, but for her age. She is without question the youngest person, by far, highlighted here in Hebrews 11. I mean, just think of the names. Enoch. Noah, 
Abraham, Sarah, Isaac when he's dying, Jacob when he's dying, Joseph when he's dying, Moses. Rahab is clearly the youngest of them, except maybe Abel, but nobody else is even close. Okay? If Rahab isn't the bawdy innkeeper, then others see her as a really good person, forced into life of prostitution, a victim of circumstance in society, and now the time has come for the good to come out of her, the stereotypical Hollywood character of the hooker with the heart of gold. But I don't think that's right either. Rahab seems pretty well enmeshed in Canaanite society. Her name, Rahab, is the name of a Canaanite god, great sea serpent. In Psalm 89, Isaiah 51, which lists the gods of the nations that the Lord defeated, Rahab is on the list. Her parents named her after a pagan god. And Rahab seems very well connected in Jericho. She owns a house. In verse 3, the king of Jericho calls it your house, her house. Oh, and by the way, throughout this whole account, it seems to me that the king of Jericho knows exactly who she is and exactly where she lives, and I'm going to let you do with that whatever you want. In verse 15, we read that her house is on the city wall. It's close to the gate. It's a well-to-do area of the city. Verse 18, we see that she's to bring her father and her mother and her family into your house. It's a big place. In a male-dominated society, how is this 17-year-old girl owning a house in a well-to-do part of the city? She seems to have done very well for herself in her chosen profession. She is quite the businesswoman. Maybe she is running a tavern downstairs with a separate profit center one flight up. Oh, and by the way, don't forget on the roof with all the barley that's up on the roof, enough to hide two men. Okay, here's another take. When the History Channel ran its series on the Bible, remember that a few years ago, History Channel ran the series on the Bible, they depicted Rahab as a frightened young girl, caught in the moment, not knowing what to do. Now, I think they got the age right, but not much else. She is not just trapped in the moment. She hides the spies, but not only hides the spies, but in verses 4 and 5, she comes up with a cover story. When the JBI, that's the Jericho Bureau of Investigation, (laughs) when the JBI shows up at her door and talks with her and says, we have men meeting this description who, come into, who have come into your house. She doesn't try to deny it. She doesn't try to stonewall it. She comes up with a really complicated cover story. Take a look at verse 4. Now, let me tell you respectfully that I grew up in church, and I learned the story of Rahab in Sunday school, and I was taught the PG version of this story. But we're all adults here, and so let's consider what she's spinning when the King James language so politely says, the men came into me. Imagine the scene. JBI questions her about these two men who have come in. We have the report of two men meeting the description of come in. Average height, average build. Have you seen them? What can you tell us? And Rahab says, gee, officer. Men from out of town come in here a lot. What do you think I do here for a living? Yeah, the men came into me. They paid by the hour and they left. And I don't know where they're from. In my line of work, there are three questions you never ask. What's your name, where are you from, and how's your wife? <laughs> but she says in verse 5, I saw those same men go out the gate just before it was shut. And I think that they're heading for the river. And I think you should send your men to follow them towards the river right away. 
In verse 7, she sends the whole search party off towards the Jordan while she's got the spies hidden upstairs. Then in verse 7, as soon as the posse leaves the city, gates are shut, she puts plan B into action. Now, I think she thought she was going to be able to get him out through the gate. But the city stays in lockdown, so she puts plan B into action. And in verse 15, she gets the spies out down the back wall in the dark. In verse 16, she tells the spies, you got to head for those mountains over there. you got to stay there for three days, because that's how long it's going to take for the posse to search the river and get back empty-handed. And then you can make your way back around and get back to your camp. This is no frightened little girl. This is no bawdy prostitute. This is no good girl who fell in with the wrong crowd. All those depictions seriously underestimate her. Let's talk seriously, honestly. Historically and today, most men will underestimate the intelligence of attractive women. That is because they substitute their testosterone for their brains. You know what Rahab is? Am I right? You know what Rahab is? Rahab is smart. She is very, very, very smart. She's what we would call street smart. She has lived by her smarts. Maybe she has worked her way up by being underestimated and by taking advantage of being underestimated in a male-dominated society. And I judge from recent depictions of her, she's still being underestimated today. She knows Jericho inside and out. She is not afraid of the king. She comes up with a cover story for the JBI. She anticipates where the search party is going to look. She knows how long it's going to take for them to get back. She's probably had a lot of experience dealing with the local police. She knows where the spies should hide inside the city. She knows where they should hide outside of the city. She's not pious or romantic. She knows her world for what it is. She knows this place is doomed. She's not thinking of herself, but she's thinking of her family. She has a better handle of what's going on in Jericho than anybody else in the story, including the king, including the spies. She is a very good liar. She's probably had a lot of practice, which means she's a very good actress. She can be very convincing, which means she's a very good salesperson. She convinces the posse to head for the river. She convinces the spies to trust her and head for the mountains. She convinces her family to escape destruction and come into her house. She is quite the entrepreneur. She did not get that house on the city wall by inheritance. Her parents are still alive. She did not get that house by accident. And in a moment of crisis, with the city in lockdown, the populace in panic, law enforcement at the door, spies on the run, king making demands, and everything around her in chaos, she can size up the situation, make a clear-headed decision, see the way forward, make the biggest decision of her life, bet everything, and get it right. This Rahab of Jericho, wow. She is really something. See, people un underestimate Rahab because they underestimate faith. People think faith is some romantic feeling or doing some ceremony, but it's not. Rahab wasn't romantic. She wasn't interested in ceremony. People think that faith is the opposite of making rational decisions, but Rahab is thinking more clearly than anybody else in the story. Faith is the determination to believe what God says is true and to trust the Lord more than the world and to act on that basis. Rahab could have given the men up. It certainly would have been the safest decision in the short term. But Rahab chose to believe what she could not yet see. She chose to see the invisible. And having made that choice, she moved forward decisively on it. I suggest to you that there are a lot of people, there are a lot of people who know in their heart and know in their gut that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. But in the whirlwind of everyday life, 
and with the, pre the pressure of an ungodly world all around us, they cannot find the courage to do what Rahab did, to look at life and to look at eternity with a clear head and clear eyes and say, if that's the way forward, if that's the way to God, then who cares what I once was? Who cares what I am now? I have a chance to start life over again. That's the way I'm going to go. Story of Rahab, great stuff. But as great as that is, and I hope that you find that mildly interesting, that's the warm-up act. The most interesting things, to me, the most inspiring things about Rahab is what comes next. Now, I'm going to have to get, get at this by working backwards, so I'm going to need your help. Turn with me to the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 24. We're going to go to almost the last verses in the book. Joshua chapter 24, verse 29. Joshua 24, 29. Now it came to pass after these things that Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. Verse 31. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had known all the works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. book of Joshua is a book of history. And you can see from this verse it was written by a historian. We don't know who, but it's not a contemporaneous account of events. It's not like Nehemiah. Nehemiah, for example, is a contemporaneous account written the first person singular of events as they happen. Joshua, the book of Joshua, the writer is at least writing this part after Joshua's death and after the elders who outlived Joshua. So this book is being written at least one or two generations removed. Now hold that thought. We're going to need that thought in a minute. And look at this behind me from the book of Judges, chapter 2. Take the story a little bit further. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Baals, and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Now turn back in Joshua to Joshua chapter 6. Joshua chapter 6, and we're going to read what is, for me anyway, the most interesting, inspiring verse about Rahab. Joshua 6 is the fall of Jericho, and now the walls are down, the victory is won. Look at verse 22. But Joshua had said to the two men who had spied out the country, Go into the harlot's house, and from there bring out the woman and all that she has as you swore to her. Verse 25. And Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, her father's household, and all that she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day, because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. See that phrase in verse 25? She dwells in Israel to this day that I find so interesting. Let's put this together. Let's put this together. Joshua was not a young man when Israel took Jericho. He'd been born in Egypt. He made it through the wilderness. There's only one other of his generation that made it, and that was Caleb. Joshua died before the land is fully conquered, and the generation after him is faithful to the Lord. But the next generation was not. They served Baal. They forsook the Lord. And it was during that second generation that the book of Joshua was written. It was written in the days of a generation that had lost its way. It was written in the days when Israel had forgotten the Lord, turned to the Baals, and turned to the gods of the Canaanites. And in the midst of that generation, Rahab is still living. The author of Joshua says that Rahab is living in Israel until what was for him the present day. 
I mean, that's one of the reasons I think Rahab is so young back in Joshua chapter 20, back in Joshua 2. She's alive not only beyond Joshua, she's alive beyond the generation that followed Joshua. And now she is a very old woman. She's the last memory of a civilization now gone. Maybe this generation of Israel has not seen the mighty works of the Lord, but she has. She was there when the walls of Jericho came down. But now it seems that this new, young generation in Israel doesn't get it. Despite having the law of the Lord, despite having the testimony of history, they can't grasp what she saw immediately those many years ago, and that saved her and that it carried her from that day into this one. She's watching a generation that should know the Lord turn to pagan, the, the pagan gods of her own life, to the old gods of Canaanite Jericho, turn to the ways that she left behind years ago. If faith means moving forward and looking forward, this generation is in full retreat. Maybe they don't know it, but I think Rahab did. Remember this verse? Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, Obed begot Jesse. After the days of Jericho, Rahab lived in Israel, joined herself to a new people. The way someone would be saved and come and join a church just like this one, join a new people. At some point in her life, a couple years later I imagine, Rahab marries Salmon. Who, about whom we know nothing except that he shows up in the genealogies. Now, one day, after the resurrection, I want to find Salmon, and I want to talk to him about how he met Rahab. I want to know where they went on their first date. And I think Salmon really married up. Rahab has a son, and his name is Boaz. And we know a lot about Boaz from the book of Ruth. And Boaz is great. Boaz is great. Boaz, I, I, I have a particular like of Boaz. He's a fantastic businessman. He's a great entrepreneur. In researching this, uh, I couldn't help but think that Boaz got his mother's genes. Boaz got his mother's smarts. And as good as Boaz is as a businessman, he's better spiritually. When Rahab was saved by faith, and that's what she was, she was saved by faith. She was plucked out of a world that was going nowhere. She had no background. She had no training in the Lord. She hadn't, she hadn't grown up learning the law of the Lord. She knows nothing about the commandments, nothing about the tabernacles, nothing about the sacrifices, nothing about the feast. She walked, she walked in here, it was her first day, and you were talking about it's the Feast of Trumpets and the Jewish New Year. She had no idea what you were talking about. Her family didn't know anything about the Lord. She's, in fact, the pioneer of her faith. It's her faith that's bringing her parents along. It's her faith that's bringing her siblings along. When she was saved, she only knew two things about the Lord. One, he was real. And two, he was there. But when the curtain goes down on Act 1 of Rahab's story after Jericho, and when it goes back up again on Act 2, and when we meet her son, Boaz knows the law of the Lord down to his shoes. In the book of Ruth, we learn all about the law of redemption because Boaz is talking us through it and giving us all the details. And with Boaz, it's not just a religion. He puts the essence of God's law into practice. He's an employer who treats his employees well. He provides benefits for the poor of the land. He loves and protects his wife. He's good to his mother-in-law. He's a good father to his children. And he's living this manner of a godly life in the midst of a generation of Israel that's going the wrong way. When Rahab of Jericho started a new life, she really did. And it took root. And she raised a son who would live in the Lord and live by his word all his life, even in evil days. 
I know Christians. I'll bet you know Christians too, who are just like Rahab. I know Christian women, and you do too, who are just like Rahab. Not that they were sexually immoral, but that they were just making it through life. Just making it through life, living in a modern-day Jericho, knowing nothing of the Lord, nothing of his word, without a spiritual heritage behind them, without a church around them, with no one in their family to teach them, and then faith came, and faith changed everything. For people like that, faith takes courage. Faith takes the courage to start a new life. Faith takes the courage to join a new people. I know more than one person, and I'll bet you do too, who started spiritually with nothing, who were saved, as the Apostle Paul said, as one born out of due time, but who had the courage to do what she knew in her heart was true, and then raised children that would honor the Lord and sent them back out into that world without fear. Rahab of Jericho, a heroine of faith, a worthy member of this list in Hebrews 11, a great role model and a great inspiration for us today. Thank you so much for having me today as your guest. Thank you so much for listening to me. And I trust that the Lord... I trust that the Lord will bless, will bless, these, bless his word to our heart. Let's pray and then... And then I'll give it back. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the grace you have given to us. We thank you for faith, and we thank you that when faith comes and it enlightens our hearts and enlightens our minds, that we can see clearly the way forward. Lord, we pray for courage in our own lives. We pray for the courage born of faith. And our Father, we pray that in this community, I pray that in this area, you would open for this church, for my brothers and sisters here, a, an open door for the preaching of the gospel. I pray at Forge Road Bible Chapel, my home church, that you would open a door for the preaching of the gospel. And I pray, Father, that we, as we raise our children, as we raise our families, that we would raise them strong and courageous in faith. And now, Lord, we commit this day to you, giving thanks in your son's holy name. Amen. Thank you so much for having me today. It's been great to be with you.